Welcome to the Previously Rockhounding Podcast, where we explore the world of rockhounding and lapidary from the ye olden days of the 1970s and 80s through the lens of vintage issues of Rock and Gem Magazine. This is episode three. We're looking at Rock and Gem Magazine from November 1975. The so, way we go about doing these episodes is I read the issue, Sarah reads the issue, we generally take notes, and we come together and we discuss them here. We have not talked about it yet. So yeah. This is our first discussion. Although there was a lot in this one to there was a lot to this talk was, about. There was definitely a, a bunch of things. Before we get into this episode, uh, I want to kind of go back in time a little bit. We weren't exactly sure when Rock and Gem magazine was first published. Like we don't, we don't, we didn't know how far along the the timeline of this we were. Uh, thankfully, 775 Rockhounding, uh, his name's BJ down in Elko, Nevada, he sent me a message in regards to the age of Rock and Gem magazine, which, you know, we definitely had a hard time determining. There's <laughs> not a lot of information online about the history of Rock and Gem magazine. So. Yeah, you looked at their, their wiki page. There's no Wikipedia page oh. for them. Well, that was really easy that to was, look up. That was the problem. <laughs> uh, he said that they had a 50th anniversary issue from July uh, 2021, which would put the start date of the magazine at July 1971. Hmm. So we are only a couple years deep into it here in 1975. So it's not new and... The issues we're reading aren't super early, like they've got all the kinks worked out, presumably. And I don't know if they got all the kinks worked out, but uh, yeah, so I just wanted to throw that little update out for those of you who have listened since the beginning. Well, this one was November, and the theme was Christmas. <laughs> Particularly in the ads. Yes, everybody's getting pumped in the ads for Christmas. Yes, I mean, which doesn't make sense. You're not buying your rough rock in November for making stuff for Christmas. I mean, one of the articles was like, you should be done by your with your stuff by now, <laughs> or else you're going to make something that is not what you initially intended. But none of the advertisers seem to care. I mean... Lots of Christmas specials. There, there, yeah, there was a lot of Christmas specials, and really, like, what was like the shipping like back in 1975? I mean, if you're having to send away for the product and then receive it like weeks, yeah, ish. I mean, obviously, I don't, you know, like, we're making the assumption that they issued their magazine at the beginning of November. Mm-hmm. So, like, you buy it the first week, then decide you want to order something, send them, like, a check. Yeah. And they get it. They wait for it to clear because we didn't have instant check clearing back then like we do mm-hmm. today. And then ship it and what, like, it's coming in three weeks later? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure what, <clears throat> why the advertisers went all out for November, I guess, just because it's on people's minds? or Yeah, I would have gone all out in October. <laughs> Or September. Sure, even better. Whenever. I, the the ads seemed much more elaborate. They were. Like, previous issues, it's just mostly been text-based, maybe a little bit of images. But, like, right when you, the first thing you see when you open the magazine 
is like a huge ad, full page drawing, fancy looking it was fire ca- agate ad. Yeah, it was kind of done in the style of a comic book. Yeah, it was, it was like a. Yeah, it, it reminded me of a like some comics that I read in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And uh, there will like, be a photo up on the website. It had uh, like a southwestern theme. There's like a cactus <clears throat> who was talking and. What the prices were like on a, I don't know, not a dumpster. They were on like a can. A they were like box. on a crate. Yeah, a crate. Yeah, and it was not. It was not the like. Here's a line of large text, and then a line of smaller text, and then a little paragraph, and then an address. Like that's like what a lot of the ads are. But it was very elaborate. And if you want to see some of the ads, you can go to currentlyrockcompany.com/podcast, and under every episode. There will be some photos of what we're discussing here in the podcast. Yeah, I thought that that one was interesting. I was not mm-hmm. expecting a full-page ad. I, I wish there was uh, like a little thing that said what the ads cost. Yeah, I you know, what like they cost. what was like the the price breakdown for a full-page ad mm-hmm. in Rocket Jump magazine in 1975? Yeah, that would be interesting to know how much they paid for that ad. I mean, also. It was just the first thing you see when you open the magazine yeah. is that fancy ad. Um, I noticed some interesting ad placement in this one, which I know in previous episodes we've been like, okay, they're showing like 10 steps to, what was it, like cast a ring or something, and it's, oh, also the, the product we're using, you can buy it. Mm-hmm. And it was a little sketchy. In this one, there was an article on making something out of seashells, <laughs> and the author was uh, Dixie Douglas. And on the second page of the article, there was a little ad for pre-drilled shells, perfect for making shell roses, which is what the article was about, from the Dixie Star Gem Shop. I don't know if the Dixie Star Gem Shop and Dixie Douglas are related in some way. Coincidence? (laughs) (laughs) We'll we'll hold off on talking about the article. Right, no, just the product placement, the ad placement. I was like, so is this whole art, like, how did Dixie pay to write that article and have it included in Rock and Gem magazine? I, I wonder if people had similar thoughts. Yeah. As to like the underhandedness. I mean, they weren't like, "Whoa, so convenient! I can write write this place and get my my uh, uh, material for this project." Well, I feel like the internet's made me a much more skeptical, untrusting individual. So like, yeah, you know, we're talking about the ye olden days here. Still, were people more just like, "Oh, that's that's nice," and like moved on, or were they like, "Hmm, what's their angle?" I think people were skeptical as they are now, and that was the thing they would have been skeptical about. I don't know. Well, there is... I have three ads here that were all very, very similar, but they all have something in common. And uh, it's. I think it's a little interesting because it's something that I've spent a fair amount of time like thinking about and mm-hmm. doing some uh, research on. One was from Cab Master. And they had a wax-free gripper that would mechanically pinch a cab from all the sides. Mm-hmm. So, like, imagine you have a slab and you cut out an oval. 
and it's like little fingers that would kind of grasp the cab uh, so that you could get away from wax, eating yeah. up the wax. Mm -hmm. There's another one from Happy Dop, and they had a wax-free dop stick. And this one probably seemed the most elaborate and most what I want to make. Unfortunately, I got rid of my lathe. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, pretty much it was, a, imagine a metal stick, like a metal dowel, metal rod, and the end of it is threaded. And onto that end of that threaded rod, you would have a metal disc. And on that metal disc, you would have your cab that you're working on just using tape, like stuck there with 3M tape. Uh, and then you could unthread those and work on another one. So as you go from you know, 80 grit to 3000 grit on whatever machine you're using, you can use one handle and just go between them all, right? Like you're, mm -hmm. you're changing out the cabs mm -hmm. through the grits. Uh, and then there was another one from Super X Dop, which was a little similar to uh, the Happy Dop system. But like, it's interesting, like, as we go through the years here, I'm really curious to see if this is like a continuing thing, because currently there's companies like Highland Park Lapidary and a number of other companies that are like revolutionary new, like mm -hmm. wax-free dop. And we're like, wait, they've been doing this since 70s. Yeah, I mean, clearly those things they were advertising didn't take. So uh, one thing that I've played around with is using new the new Loctite tape. So literally taking a, a metal washer and I put a screw through it and put it on a wooden dowel and use tape. Mm -hmm. And that worked great. Works great. Like, hmm. now I don't know why it hasn't caught on. Yeah. But it's interesting that we can go back in time like this and we can see these things that some companies are really kind of pushing as like their unique idea and be like, no. <laughs> not unique. Yeah. Not, and also not that good because it didn't stand the test of time. That was not the solution to your dop wax problem because here we are almost 50 years later still using it. Yeah. I'm st I still have like a little pot of wax that I'm melting yeah. and so I'm unhappy with it. Definitely it. seems outdated technology. And apparently it seemed that in 1975 also. The ad for the metal detector, they've had this I think it's the same like metal detector company always has a full has had a full page ad and the last two were like, "Oh, this guy's going to go find the buried treasure ships whatever and he didn't find it." I looked it up. <laughs> and so now he, they're like, "Oh, we sold a metal detector to this guy, Bob Lilly from the Dallas Cowboys, and they had like little like three question interview, and they're like a picture of them like handing the metal detector to him. That's funny to be like, oh wow, an NFL player uses that metal detector. It's good enough for me. Also, I don't think of football players as being into metal detecting. Think of all the stuff that's potentially dropped on the sidelines of the field. That's is that a metal detecting activity or like a magnet fishing activity? <laughs> I mean, uh, good question. Metal detecting. Yeah. Both metal detecting. He's yeah. looking for Super Bowl rings that the yeah, opposing team accidentally Maybe that's lost. really what he was looking for. Yeah, that's celebrity. Celebrity endorsement is yeah. a little not what I was expecting out of this. I like in my mind, I split that out to like 
other 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 types yeah. of Yeah, I don't oh. think of a. I don't. Was that like the one and only celebrity that was endorsing a metal detector? I mean, I don't know. Is that's not a hobby that has. It's a hobby that's waned a little bit. I well, metal detecting is still really popular. Uh, we personally have a metal detector, and we have found garbage, and we've gotten a lot of hits on the metal detector that ended up being nothing. So maybe those metal detectors were less complex back then, and there was a more every every man hobby. It's almost too complex now. Like you can't just have a metal detector. You need a metal detector. You need the little pinpointer. You need to like know how to make a perfect little hole. You need a, like headphones so you don't annoy everybody with the beeping. The headphones aren't normal headphones. They have that huge like one eighth inch, isn't that like? Yeah, they have uh, like a stereo jack. Yeah, like a stereo jack. It's just I don't know. It doesn't feel very. I think accessible. also it could be a, the price point that we got into metal detecting at. That could be. We should have looked up that one that the football player had and got that one. I know, we messed up. There, there was an, a neat ad for uh, a device called the Sandoflex. Hmm. And the Sandoflex, the name alone kind of like uh, conjures like an image of the 50s. Like yeah. the Sandoflex. Mm-hmm. Uh, so pretty much, imagine a wheel, right, for a cab machine. And it has like flaps. Right, like kind of like a brush, like brush flaps, like eight of them going around, and it looks like super dangerous. And I'm not one to be like <laughs> safety sallying anything, but like looking at it, I'm like that seems like a terrible idea to have like a stiff, bristled, like non-continuous like flapping wheel. Uh, and they said it's for soft stones, shells wood burls and driftwood and i'm like i can't imagine like taking any of these things to this device there'll be a photo of it up on the website under this uh episode but that's the only time i've ever seen anything like that sanding those things yeah it's for sanding them down like shaping shaping driftwood that you could then I don't know. Pretend it, you found it that way. Isn't like, the point of driftwood? You're like, look at the shape it's been shaped by shaped the ocean. Into? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. That's when I well, when I think of driftwood, I think of like you're finding a natural yeah, beauty like in in mm-hmm. that. Um, also, just like when I think of my own shop, right? When you're really like set up for lapidary, you're generally not really set up to be like grinding shells and driftwood. Um, yeah, that. I mean, just all the dust and the mess, and like, you know, you're doing this on a cab machine. Hmm. This is one of the widest audience possible for their product. <laughs> it seems like it would catch your finger and it would suck. So maybe it was really safe, and you're just not understanding the mechanics. Like well, everybody doesn't understand the Richardson sander. That's a little different, but I see your point. I'm going to go try to buy a Sandoflex. Yeah, maybe there's a, someone on YouTube has one. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. It really looks like a terrible idea. It really looks like a terrible concept. Mm-hmm. Like, 
back back to that one ad real quick. Uh, the shells. Like there really is more of an emphasis in the mid '70s in these magazines on shells and doing things with shells and buying shells and polishing shells and cutting shells yeah. than I would have ever expected because I cannot remember the last time I saw somebody wearing a shell. Yeah, I don't know. Not really. Like mm. early 2000s, like a choker done of shells? Was that the last time? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, there's just more of like a using things that you find in nature or looking for things in nature like you know there's like a treasure hunting aspect to it too so maybe it's just kind of that like certainly shells are not don't really have a place in rock hounding unless they're a fossilized shell i guess but (laughs) not content i would have expected i expect to see or like selling shells or agreed so in the column, The Glory Hole, uh, which that's like an editor's column, they were talking about dousing. Yeah, I was um, surprised to read, read it. So for those of the, you that don't know, the, the practice of dousing is imagine two capital L-shaped metal rods, like there's, and you're kind of holding it by the bottom, and you're walking, and when they like cross, that's where there's whatever thing that you're looking for. <laughs> yeah, and the way they described it in the column as being as legitimate as a metal detector, and they're talking about, I mean, they said that. They said it was like equal to a metal detector and what you'll find. They said it was taught in at Soviet colleges in their geology curriculum, they said it was used in the Vietnam War to find uh, mines or bombs. Yeah, landmines. Landmines. And they really did not have any irony to how they meant. They were very serious about like using this technique. So there's no proof that this is a thing. Now, it's a, I would say it's about as controversial of a topic as I, will, I ever probably want to approach. I mean... Um, so I forget, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, uh, but the guy who runs a like lobbying group for mining and like small American miners association, he put up a video on this very topic where they did a double blind kind Mm -hmm. of test, right? So in an enclosed space, a guy was dousing for gold like under rubbermaid bins Hmm. and the person testing and the person placing everything they like nobody Mm -hmm. had any connection so there's no way that you could potentially like get a tell Hmm. on where they were at and they didn't do like any better than like random guessing um that's what it said in the article it said like oh i i have i've had consistent results from dousing almost basically the same as detailed examination. So it's like, wait, you just said it. You can use your eyeballs and it, I don't, it didn't seem like it had that great of results, but I don't expect it to have great results. And like you said, it's, I I think it's been (laughs) widely disproven as not 
holding much water. Yeah, I was surprised to read it, them recommending it as like a legitimate tool. Yeah, I was a little surprised by that as well. I mean, um, I don't exactly know when all of the debunking of it really happened, but that was definitely a thing. And, you know, like when you find some of the debunking of dowsing online and the person performing it has been kind of questioned, they certainly have quite the, there's always an excuse, you know, it's like they didn't sleep right. They, Neptune's in retrograde and it's a Thursday and they didn't have their third cup of coffee. Um, and that's why they couldn't find a gold nugget mm. under a cup out of 10 cups. I mean, um, but I, it would be great if it worked. I can see the wishful thinking. I mean, they're like, you can find gold, you can find opal, you can find landmines, you can find all this stuff, which I don't know. When they say that, you should be like, well, wait, how is it finding a landmine and gold? Because they're like, oh, you can't use a metal detector to find the like the mines or the traps or whatever in like the Vietnam War. That's why they used it. Yeah, they were talking about like the C4 explosive, like yeah. plastic mines. But you would think so, it would, you'd be, you know, just approach things with a critical eye and be like, that doesn't make any sense. Not from whoever the writer of the glory hole is. <laughs> They don't have a letter to the editor section. Most magazines have like a letter, not a, like a letter reader write-in sort of thing. This one doesn't have that. No advice column. Yeah, there's no advice column either. Maybe I'll get an advice column. Maybe. Maybe we should start. We should start our own advice column when we're done with this podcast. Yeah. Also, in that column, the writer mentioned that Christmas was coming and. <laughs> How their advertisers in the magazines were really ha- in the magazine were really happy because they were making a lot of sales and he's I think as I assume it's a guy he said more and more people are buying quality and refusing mass-produced junk. I feel like that's not accurate today. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know if I that mean, was accurate. Then. Yeah, like if you think of like. <laughs> Going into a rock shop. Sure, like, they have tumbled something that's local, like tumbled petrified wood. But they also have, like, a billion quartz hearts mm-hmm. and cut scepters and just wacky shaped things shaped in factories in China or something. You know, that's not... That's definitely ma- a lot of mass-produced junk around. I I tried to look into if we had cabochon duplicating machines in the mid-70s, uh-huh. and I wasn't able to find anything, but we certainly have cabochon duplicators now, uh, which I know that might maybe some people listening don't realize this, but when you see a cabochon and it's really affordable, the basics of it is that it was probably came off of a duplicating machine. So you can have like a like a die, and the machine essentially grinds like almost like a hundred percent of the cab, and it just needs to do some final polishing on it. Hmm. So they can just like spit them out. Well, the, there's not ads in the magazine for stuff like that. Like 
And there wasn't really... Um, most... We've seen a couple for, like, cabs that you could buy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, most... th- those were probably made by hand. Right. But, like... Most of the ads in the magazine are, like, rough rock. Mm-hmm. But to, today... Or equipment. Today, you can certainly buy cabs by the hundred. Yeah. So... Certainly a lot of mass-produced junk, as as he said. <laughs> uh, the, the frantic fumbler column had some like uh, pretty interesting tips that was shared with him. And it's a little, little bit in reference to some of the cab stuff and some of the dopping. So one of the tips that was shared with him was by a Southern Oregon rock hound, which used a clothing pin. Mm. And it was like the old, imagine like the older spring-loaded split style clothing pin and not like the little clampy ones like we have today um but he was like oh it's the best because like when you're using it with like your wax you can take it off and like clip it on your workbench Mm -hmm. or whatever but just another thing where they're talking about how that we need an improvement on dopping and holding holding of things um they're really there's got to be a better way people (laughs) I mean, we've had 50 years, and clearly nobody has come up with a better way. And they're actively working on it in 1975, so I don't know. Is there just not a better way? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe a, a cab duplicator is the better way. <laughs> you could go buy yourself like a $6,000 duplicating machine, and then you don't have to use any yeah, wax. problem solved. That'll save, save you from the the heartache of having to deal with that. Mm-hmm. There was the shop talk column, which I thought, I was a little surprised to see this one. So in it, they were discussing building a polariscope, and that is not something that like anybody needs. And I would assume that a large, mm-hmm. go ahead. Is it like a magnet? I didn't really understand what it was. It's like a magnifying? They did a completely terrible job of explaining what this device is and does. The polariscope, which at the time when I saw this, I was like, wait, I kind of have an idea of it. But they kept talking about like dual rotating Polaroids. Yeah, they and... kept saying Polaroid and it was capitalized. And I was like, does this have something to do with film cameras? So, yeah. It kind of. So the polariscope is an optical inspection device, and it's used to detect the internal stresses in glass and other transparent, like materials, you know, uh, like different resins, plastics, these types of things. So um, it can be used to determine if a gem is isotropic or anisotropic. It's basically two polarized lens. Imagine like a polarizing lens from like a camera mm-hmm. and uh, you you rotate them above each other and there's a space and an illuminator. So you would have two polarizing lenses with your gem in between them and the light shining up through it. And as you rotate them, you are polarizing and it will create one of four basic patterns of light and dark in that gem. Hmm. Like imagine like when I say a gem, like imagine like a 
Really a small. cut piece of yeah. like a sapphire, mm -hmm. a cut sapphire. And then you can use that pattern that is created through that shadow of polarizing, and you can use it to aid in the identification of the gem. Never heard of that. It is not something that most people would ever really use, and they really didn't do a great job of explaining it. Like I thought it was just like a magnifier to see something better. Like I didn't get it. Yeah, all. they really did a bad job <laughs> of explaining it. Uh, you can buy a really nice one on Amazon for a hundred bucks, mm. and you can buy one on Alibaba for eight bucks. Oh. So. Um, Is that the deal? Yeah. Eight, not a hundred. <laughs> well, but are so it just shows you a pattern. Yeah, so uh, it's hard to explain polarizing versus showing polarizing. But if you take two polarized lenses and you rotate them like ninety degrees from each other, you'll essentially cut out like a lot, almost all the light. Uh, and when you have a gem that's being illuminated from below between those two polarizing lenses, it will, you know, you're just kind of looking at like the outline mm. of a thing. And as you change it, different gems based upon their crystalline structure will show what residual light is there in different patterns. And you can look at a chart of patterns that you could see with this device and what gems it would potentially be. Like, you what? know, a good example would be, let's say you have a sapphire that's cut and natural, and you have a sapphire from the exact same place, and it's been heat treated, and one's white, clear, translucent white, and the other one's translucent blue, and you wanna just have an easy way of figuring out, oh, these are both sapphires. They would produce the same light and dark pattern under the, the polariscope. What would you use? Who is the intended person to need one of those? Probably like a, I mean, a gem dealer. Are you like checking or... to make sure your gems are legit that yeah. you bought? Yeah, I mean, you could use it for that. Mm. It doesn't seem like the best identification tool. Um, we have better ones nowadays. I, I don't really see them being used a whole lot by anybody. Huh. But I thought that was so. The 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 article was about building your own, making a, only, a, a DIY one. It was only one page article. Oh, sorry, uh, it was a column. Yeah, I mean, the, but the whole thing only took up one page, yeah. and yeah, it was not really an article. Was, there was a lot of pictures. It wasn't very, yeah, I guess it was just... It wasn't what I would ever expect <laughs> as like a, hey, here's like a DIY project yeah. for you. <laughs> this is not... Um, It'd be a good companion if they had had an article on gem identification and whatever the thing you said that it identifies. Maybe an article written by the Polariscope Institute of America yes. and they just so happen to have an ad selling one. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm, I didn't. Well, some of the stuff, the like DIY stuff, I don't, I find it hard to follow. I don't feel like they, I don't have much knowledge of the stuff they're doing and they don't really explain like okay we're gonna do this and the end product is gonna be this or like the actual thing that we're doing is making this thing like so i have and they skip the why in they, a lot of it yeah like why are we doing this here yeah 
one article that they had where he was making a I didn't making a wax cast of a belt buckle mm-hmm. and I read through that whole thing and I was like why are they doing that and it was the water soluble water wa- sol- yeah so you like Go ahead. You, I didn't even write anything down about it because I didn't. I was like, I don't need. Well, how does this have to do with rock hound, rocks, gems? Like, so the the basics of it would be that you could take a pre-existing belt buckle, like you had a you had a metal belt buckle mm-hmm. that you really liked, and you were just like, I'm gonna rip this off. Or maybe you made one and you want to like yeah. duplicate it. So you could take that belt buckle and you would press it into a mold clay. And then, or, you know, molding clay, and you'd have the form. You would then pour into that water-soluble wax, and then that would be followed by a casting wax. You could then put it in water and dissolve the water-soluble wax, and what you'd be left with is casting wax mold. And the idea is that I think the water-soluble was a lot more watery, and you would get a finer casting. Like, yeah. you would capture more details right. out of your product you're knocking off. But then then what do you do with that? You, like, pour metal into so it the, to make a new buckle? The With the casting wax, I believe it would be part of the lost wax casting process. And that's essentially, like, you've made a wax mold of something... And you encase it in other stuff, other products. And when you dump your like molten silver mm-hmm. into it, it pours down from the top, melts all the wax, and displaces the wax and squirts it out. And now you have a silver knockoff belt buckle. So uh, that was kind of the gist of that. They, they, there's been a bunch of talk about casting, and it's not... Casting yeah. isn't as prevalent today as it once was. There's a lot of wax, dipping things in wax, or, yeah, casting that they don't explain what they're hoping to, intending to get out of the process. You know, if they were like, look at this great necklace, let me show you how to do it. Like, that'd be one thing, but they're just like, you can cast a ring, here we go, take your thing, dip it in here, and I'm like, I don't yeah (laughs) like i bought this belt buckle and i really liked it i wanted another one here we go i'm like but they didn't make another one just made like the wax cast of it and so i was like well they feel a little some of the diy articles feel a little incomplete for sure yeah i mean when when i look at rock and gem magazine i guess i don't really look at it for the diy so much as like the field trips and like articles about like going finding cool stuff like sure. that's certainly. I mean, I'm biased. Like, what can I say? Like, that's yeah, what that's, I want to do. Something learned too. Uh, in it, they had an article, field trip article, going to. I'm gonna butcher this. New Mexico's cat. How do you pronounce it? Oh, I thought it was Catron. Catron. New Mexico's Catron country. Everybody should know Can't that be. pronunciation is not my strong suit. Uh, so it's uh it's a mining area near the New Mexico Arizona border. And they went to the Fanny Mine. It's also known as the Little Fanny Mine, which was a gold and silver mine. And 
it had an amazing tailings pile where collectors would go and they would uh, go for quartz, calcite, pyrite, calcopyrites, glenas, fluorites, bornites, malachites, lots of different things. And actually, like, the mineral list that they put in the article is very different than the mineral list that you can find on Mindat. Mm. There's like a there's a grip of stuff that uh, could be found there. And I went and looked looked it up. And yeah, obviously this is like ginormous tailing pile, which they showed in the magazine. You can mm. obviously still see from space. Like it's mm. it's it's a huge white tailings pile. Um, and I, I liked I liked this article. I liked it because it was really written like this kind of like step-by-step guide on where to go, who to talk to. It was like, go talk to this person and give you their full name. And I mean, at that time, you could just like stop at a phone booth mm-hmm. and get like look up the person's name in the phone book and be like, call them and be like, yeah, you know, hey, what's up? Like you were in Rock and Jet Magazine, like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, they were like contact the mine for permission to check the dump piles and they're like they'll let you in you just have to contact them and like oh they're like oh you know talk to the person in the general store do like talk to this person yeah it was very step-by-step guide to doing it I mean they didn't really mention much about what they collected I mean they said what is available to collect and kind of they described they go on, they go to that mine, and then they go to, and they look for agate. And they describe the type of agate, but they weren't like, we pulled out a giant piece, or like, we spent all day, they're not digging. Like, there's not much about their experience doing it. More just like, we went here, and then we went here, and then we asked this person, which you can totally ask that person too, and you should. And then we camped here, and it was really great. And um, I kind of like that. Like, yeah. It, it's more uh, like teaching somebody how to fish. Yeah. As opposed didn't. to just giving them a fish. Mm-hmm. Well, the author of this field trip article is the same one who did the Texas one mm. in the last issue, which was very similar style where they're just like, go here, ask this person. Go here, ask this person. You know, drive down here. Um, but I thought that person's name is Xanthus Carson. And in contrast to their writing style in Rock and Joe magazine, they, I looked it up to see if they had any books published, and they have one book published called Treasure Bonanzas Worth a Billion Bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, seems so out of place for these two articles where they're just very like they're not overselling it you know they're not like we found amazing things everywhere i i feel like knowing what i managed to look up about this mine they're almost underselling it like they're downplaying Mm -hmm. these locations but what was the title of the book again treasure bonanzas worth a billion bucks you should get it. We should get it. Okay. <laughs> after after we hit stop on this, we're going to go look at eBay, see if we mm-hmm. can pick one up. Were they, like, holding back on these field trips articles? And that's the one where they're like, I found so much stuff. I, if you found a billion dollars worth of treasure, well, why are you still writing for Rock and Joe magazine? They do mention in this where they said they went to the mining 
like ghost town, mine, mining resort town, ghost town, whatever, outside the mine. And they said, bring your metal detector. Uh, somebody found gold coins recently, so your metal detector could be pro- make, help you make a profit on your trip. Uh, I've never thought about being like, let's pull over here and find some gold coins to, sounds... to offset the cost of fuel. Got a metal attack more. Find yeah, I mean, coins. if only we could pay for gas with like smashed beer cans. <laughs> um, I looked up the county in New Mexico where they're writing about where the mine is, and it's still a very sparsely populated county. They say there's 3,400 people and 12,000 elk. And there are no stoplights in the whole county, but they have a driver's, like a DMV, where you can take a driver's test, and they pull out a portable stoplight <laughs> for your driver's test, and they, like, put it up in a parking lot, because <laughs> I guess that's probably required on your to yeah, have a stoplight I mean, involved, but uh, they don't now, have one. Now that I'm, I mean, it's been a long time since I've taken a driver's license test, like a driving test. Yeah, but yeah I mean, that makes total sense. <laughs> but it's also humorous that they don't have any around to practice with. Well, then it, it, that doesn't feel like a real situation. Like, okay, take your driver's test. You're the only one driving at this pretend stoplight. Like, <laughs> that really shows your driving skills. That's what it said on Wikipedia. I don't know, maybe Wikipedia is lying I mean, you could, it, it you, sounds very humorous and potentially made up well, but after we find that book on ebay i'll go edit that wikipedia page and make it even more mm-hmm. amusing the other field trip that stood out was their mexican wolfenite discovery which was mm-hmm. also on the cover and that was actually very very good i i really mm-hmm. liked their 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 kind of their report on it so the, the gist of it is they there was a big pocket, a big vug discovered. It was at, like a vein of wolfenite in the mine where they were at. And they like unearthed, like it wasn't really a pocket. It was actually like the top of the vein. And they're like, the vein goes, who knows how deep, but they're just at a certain point of the vein. But yes. Okay. Yes. It was like a pocket. It was like a pocket. It, it, it would, Sarah's correct. Uh, and it was at the Mina San Francisco mine in Mina, Mina de San Francisco, I don't know, whatever. Mexico. In Mexico. <laughs> uh, so pretty much you have some people from the magazine. There's a museum involved, some people from the museum. The so, Arizona Desert Museum. There's yeah. another word in it. It's like I'm pretty sure it's in Tucson. I think I've been hmm. th- been there. Hmm. Uh, there's also some a mineral dealer involved, oh. and uh, well, basically it was kind of like their big crazy trip down to Mexico to see this once in a lifetime well, wolfenite discovery. Well, it was like it sound. So I think if I was understanding right, the museum bought the wolfenite that they found and they were trying to get it out like in situ so they could display it because they're like it's like the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum their whole thing is like 
things in place naturally and not like here's a flower like no here's like a flower in its natural habitat mm -hmm. growing so they wanted the wolfenite and the host rock and stuff all of it so they could put it in the museum like in place like they it, didn't want to just display like a crystal yeah and part of that was documenting it because right. they knew full well that you're not taking the whole thing yeah. out in one piece like you're mm -hmm. going to need to be doing kind of dismantling the wolfenite, the blades of wolfenite off of the wall and then reassembling them uh, in, in kind of a display is what I yes. got from that. Um, but there, there were, well, first off, like huge seams of wolfenite, huge cavities, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, you want to call it. It's super rare. Like, hmm. you know, uh, you can definitely get online. You could go buy yourself some wolfenite. Like, uh there's uh, wolfenite has been found north north of where we live in in northeast Washington. There's mm -hmm. a, a wolfenite deposit. Of course, it is teeny tiny yeah. crystals, like stuff where you could take a cool picture with a modern microscope. Uh, but to give you kind of an idea, some of the the cavities that they're they're working, you know, I mean, like there's a good photo of them like inside it. Well, it was like a a kid inside it yeah big kid i don't know i couldn't tell that i thought it was interesting that the author and the other one other guy they two of them brought their sons mm -hmm. and i that'd be i can't imagine now being like oh hey my kid's not going to be in school this week we're going to drive to mexico and we're going <laughs> to pull out this giant mineral specimen what well, one, one so there's a bunch of photos of them in the actual mine and in one of the photos, uh, I, I don't know if it was somebody from the magazine or one of the locals mm -hmm. in Mexico that were working the mine, but they had a carbide headlamp mm -hmm. on. And I was a little surprised to see that. I mean, I thought, like, when I think carbide headlamps, I think, like, the 20s, what right? What is carbide? So, so carbide headlamp, uh, you mix calcium carbide and water in like a little lamp, like a little four inch tall brass lamp that's on the forehead of your he your hard yeah. hat. So you mix the calcium carbide with some water and it produces acetylene and you just light it on fire. So there's like a little candle flame with a reflector dish on your forehead hmm. and and that like so they were there'd be like these big pots, not pots, big cans of like little pill-sized pieces of calcium carbide and you'd put them in your lamp and you'd screw it shut and put some water in there and the settling gas is highly flammable mm -hmm. and you would just have this like little burning candle on on your head and i wasn't expecting to see that in a mod oh, i don't want to say mod a 1975 working mine mm -hmm. but i mean Better than a... Probably was the cheapest thing yeah, to do. I wonder if they even had power there. Yeah, I don't know. They definitely made it sound like it was very rough to yes. get out to. But they're like a couple miles where they're like, it was horrible. Horrible last couple miles. or It was like 30 miles of terrible road. Yeah. And then like ultra terrible where they're having to like hold on, bouncing around mm -hmm. in a, like an yeah. international scout, I think yeah, they said they were driving... Scout. I like I thought that was it was interesting before they got to the mine. 
before they got to the mine, they were like in the town and they were doing kind of like the tourist things. There's like somebody's like grave and somebody, they're like, oh, these two gentlemen approached us selling, trying to sell us gold and they had an ounce of gold. It was not a whole ounce, like a total ounce, but they said the biggest piece was like three eighth inch, inch or something. But like the guys had gotten it from local mines and they're just like selling it on the street and they're like, oh, we didn't buy it because we didn't have enough cash. Well, I can't, I can't imagine somebody, what's gold go per ounce? It was like... Only like 2,600 an ounce yeah, now. Yeah, I think when we looked it up. Like somebody on the street being like, here's $2,600 of something. You want to buy it? You want to buy it? Like, that's not what I imagine getting somebody trying to sell me in Mexico. Well, I mean, the price of gold has gone up uh significantly over the just like the cost it was, of it was i looked we talked about it last episode it was 170 an ounce in that this in 1975 and it's about 2000 an ounce now oh. so still 170 dollars which of 170 dollars 1975 is still a lot of money now i can't i don't know i guess maybe it's like yeah, I don't know what that yeah, would be some... equal to, but that just seems like a very surreal We're... thing to be like, you want to buy some gold? I got a gold nugget. You want a gold? Like, gold nuggets are so uncommon. Yeah. Well, they saw some rich gringos I guess. with cameras, yeah. and they're like, here's our shot. <laughs> Offload this totally legitimately acquired gold. I thought he was going to be like, oh, they're selling gold, and we knew it wasn't gold. It was really I, this. I thought that was going to be no, it was really, they were really trying to sell them gold. Uh, in the article, they said that the Wolfenite blades, some of them are up to three and a half inches, which hmm. that's like a really big blade of Wolfenite. So hmm. I, thought it was, I thought it was cool. It was very, very pretty stuff. We should uh, go to that museum if we're ever, ever down there. Yes. I wonder. I'm very curious if they still have the Wolfenite. It had to be quite the display. I mean, the picture showed like a kid in the seam, kind of like picking stuff out. So probably like three feet tall. I mean, the kid was like crouching mm-hmm. down. So three feet by a foot plus the, whatever was around it. So yeah. like that had to be interesting display. I mean, I don't know why they're putting it in the Arizona. Sonora Desert Museum since it's in Mexico, but it's not that far from Arizona. It, they definitely did a good job of conveying like the kind of epicness of the trip. Yeah. So. Yeah. There was definitely also some lapidary articles, and one <laughs> one that uh, I thought. It, I mean, it really, like, sums up the 70s, and that was their beads and bear claws. Oh, you know. Which, uh, okay, yeah. so literally uh, imagine for a second a necklace of r- real bear claws with, like, just a... The, just, like, the nail part, though. It's not, like, the, like foot like the whole foot of the bear or like the toe it was literally just like the the nail toe yeah, yeah like toe the nail, claw part the claw nail yeah yeah and it's kind of held in like a a silver setting 
with turquoise, uh, like a turquoise cab at the, I guess it would be like the base of the nail. And it was just like a very large and gaudy necklace that creepy (laughs) they spent they they was like i think 43 parts to this 43 steps to making your own and i'm like they emphasize step one is have a bear claw which is hard part yes you that's not you don't just go down to your store and pick up bear claws grizzly bear claws yeah black bear claws Probably black bear. I don't know. Black bear. They, I don't think. I don't think they. They definitely were not grizzly bear size, <laughs> but it was a very odd yeah. lapidary project. Um, you saw someone wearing jewelry with like ten bear claws surrounding the like the cab or the stone. You wouldn't be like, oh wow, interesting project. But like that person's psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> it was very large. It was a very large, uh, large necklace. So I don't know if I have much to say on that other than... It was a really long... Yeah, there's a lot of steps. It was so long. I was like, okay, I think they're good now. And they're like, nope, it's on the next page. Nope, it's still on the next page. They devoted a lot of pages to that. They did. I wish they had devoted as many pages to... The artist profile, uh, the Ben Mayo style, it was the article, mm-hmm. and I actually really liked his stuff. Uh, yeah, it looked very time, had like a more timeless look to I it, was, almost like a futuristic-y... Yeah, so, you know, the, it was a profile showcasing like some of the work from Ben Mayo, and, you know, his. I would say his stuff was very like aesthetically pleasing. Uh, it had some like geometric kind of influences mm-hmm. in it. it was more like was he like doing like silversmithing it was like silversmithing with like inlaid stone it wasn't like big cab sort of jewelry yeah what one thing that i kind of liked about it was he was doing stuff that i think at the time was kind of like very uncommon like he was using epoxy in some of his work hmm. he was sandblasting some of his pieces so they had like a like a matte finish which was kind of cool and i guess it it brings up an interesting topic because a lot of people don't start in like the world of lapidary as far as like a thing a hobby a craft whatever like people started somewhere else and then like landed here uh he was into gasoline powered model engines Mm -hmm. like model planes and stuff and that kind of carried over, it seemed like, into what he was making. And I kinda I kinda like that. It's like you can see a little bit of that like very technical influence mm-hmm. in some of his pieces. Uh, yeah. That. I just yeah. thought I thought it was very like very like kind of classy, timeless stuff versus a bunch of bear claws hanging around your neck. Yeah. Or the other project that we sort of mentioned, the seashell roses. I don't know what kind of shells those were. They didn't. I don't think it said it. Just was like a shell, but it's like the like kind of like a what a crab would be in. Like it's got thing curled, mm-hmm. and they just drill a hole in the bottom and put a stem in it. Basically, that was 
and put some greenery and that was it it's like a it's like an unopened rose uh bud yeah which i'm not sure how that has a place in rock and gem magazine money <laughs> i mean dixie was like full page ad what if i give you content and they're like sweet we need some filler Hopefully Dixie's not listening to this. We're calling you out, Dixie. Yeah. I mean, um, I, it's a very creative idea. Sure. It didn't look bad. I thought the picture that they picked to showcase it was like a corsage. And I had to look at it for a few minutes to even figure out what I was looking at. It, it was a little like like midday home and garden television project especially because then they're like oh buy your pre-drilled shells and so you just get a shell that's already drilled and you like glue a stem to it and you're like done yeah (laughs) yeah that wasn't their finest content i don't (laughs) think that that is true there was uh an article a field trip article and I think we have a lot that we could potentially say about this one because it was the precious plumes of Graveyard Point. Mm-hmm. And Graveyard Point's a place that both myself and Sarah have gone to. And if you've uh, followed us on the YouTube channel, maybe you've seen that video. Um, so Graveyard Point, uh, you have generally sea maggots, plume, plume maggot. Uh, it's what some people would call an angel wing mm. maggot. Uh, but it's basically just a seam agate, and it's like a zipper style, right? Like, so you have like a more clear chalcedony, and then you have like little teeth coming in from the outside of the seam towards the middle, like little fingers extending in, like a zipper. And yeah, that that's basically the gist of Graveyard Point. I mean, yeah, down by... we didn't really find stuff. Like that, did we? we Mostly did. we found little, like, plates. Yeah, but the it, the plates have that. Oh, but they're real, they're very thin. Um, we found some that were up to, like, an inch. Yeah. Um, in the well, article... Compared to the article, it was very thin and yeah. small. Well, uh, when we went to the Richardson's Ranch uh, shop, they had some uh, plume from Graveyard yeah. Point that was, like, a foot thick. Yeah. And, you know, it's obviously... Very amazing. Well, I mean, as this article points out, you kind of get what you put in at Graveyard Point. We were there a day. Yeah. You know, we just walked around. Whereas these people at Graveyard Point, they went to... It's not the author. They're not Mm. writing about themselves. They're writing about somebody else who goes to Graveyard Point. They kind of look and they're not satisfied with what they find. So they go look in some other place. They find some float material, they start digging, and then they hit a really big seam. And so they call their rock hounding buddy over, and they are digging at the seam for four days in, like, July, I think, mm-hmm. which, like, could not have been enjoyable. It's very hot there. So they're digging in, like, a presumably very hot weather for, like, four days straight. And I think it was they dug, like, eight foot down. Probably nice and cool in the hole. Yeah, probably this (laughs) later parts was okay. And because they were just chasing this giant, giant seam of plume agate. Yeah, I 
it, I, it seemed a lot like the trips that we take minus the four days of digging a yes. single agate out. That's a, I, as much as I love agates. I don't know if I would spend four days in the summer heat in the desert of southeast Oregon to try to get some of it, it some of it out. It mentioned that the two guys who were digging out the seam agate, they had met each other. They weren't friends. They had met each other in somewhere digging carnelian on the other side of the mm-hmm. Cascades and so the other part of Oregon. They didn't know they were both going to be in Graveyard Point, but they happened to meet up. And then they found that seam and they dug for four days on it. And I, I wonder what, how did they plan their, were they planning on spending four days at Graveyard Point? Because like when we go on a trip, we're like, we have three days. We're going here, we're going here, we're going here, we're going to be home. If we're like finding something huge, we're not like, like were they like calling sick to work? Just don't show up. Let's keep digging. Or were they like, well, I was going to go to four other spots in four other days or two other spots in the last week of my trip, but let's just stay here. Like, <laughs> that seems like a very flexible rock hounding trip to be taking. Yeah. That's... Like, what about your, don't they have responsibilities? Are they, is that just their full time travelers in the summertime, maybe? Or, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, how can you just be like, drop everything, four days digging, go? It, it... Different lifestyle, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much it. Is their story about going to Graveyard Point. Uh, I was a little surprised that it wasn't on the cover. Yeah, like, the picture. Yeah, I mean. What is know, on the cover? We got the, the, the wolf, wolf Knight wolf, and. And the jewelry from. Uh, what's his the name? The guy. Yeah. Huh. From Ben Mayo. Yeah, ben they Mayo didn't even have. Jewelry. I thought they had more color photos. There was a lot more color photos. It was photos more like, glo- even the stuff that wasn't color, it was more glossy paper than, I don't know, like more whatever the other type mm-hmm. of magazine paper was, but still the photo didn't really do it justice, I don't think. I but, presume it was hard to tell. There was a little article uh, on shop organization in there. It was a rack em up. And I thought it was neat because I've actually made some stuff like this in my shop, but I used steel and it was basically to like make some like little organizers to keep your workspace nice and neat, which I, I, I like, I suggest that, you know, it's always good use. Um, well, they were using, what was the, the thing there? Old timey dresser valets, uh-huh. which I've never heard of that. It's a board. It's just a thing you put your stuff. It was like, oh, you put your keys in your wallet and your yeah. pens on it. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't really have anything to do with rock hounding or lapidary. <laughs> but I can see it's the benefit of being organized and like knowing where things are at. I get it. Uh, let's see. Yeah, there's another. There's more field trip ones in this than the previous. I mean, the cover does say rock hound field trips and we were like well that's generic why would they say that but i guess they were saying it because there's so many they couldn't name them all on the cover yeah well there's one left and that was the oh god you you say it and you pronounce it i don't know which oh point mugu kakuin kakina Katrina? We're go- we're gonna defer to Sarah on this one. Uh, so I kind of know where this place is at, but it's in Southern California, 
And when I lived in Southern California, I I, I couldn't pronounce anything. I, I could I don't I don't have it. I don't have it in me. I mean that doesn't even doesn't. I mean, co- coquina is probably Spanish. Word. Yeah. Like, yeah, Spanish word. Like, but what's like is mugu m u g u? That doesn't look like know. a Spanish word to me. But so uh, there's a formation there, and it's limestone with a lot of shells in it, and it's just off of Highway One to the west of Malibu. So like that very like iconic like Highway One, Southern California, and uh, they they were using it for projects. And some of the projects that they said that you could use this for were ashtrays and pen holders. Yeah. And I've watched a lot of lapidary videos, uh, you know, I mean, the whole YouTube world and uh, going to rock clubs, going to rock shows, all this stuff. I've never once been like, seen somebody be like, really sweet ashtrays for sale. I feel like we've seen them ashtray or a bowl like i mean maybe i've definitely never seen a pen holder that seems very low effort to be like cut a rock and then just like drill a hole and be like put your pen in it it was yeah it's like a rectangular block of rock well you had to well that's what he they said in the letter to the or the editor's column the uh, what was it the uh, glory hole. They're like, you better finish your projects, or you're just going to be giving people pen holders, because <laughs> like, it's just a, a rectangle, and you glue. Well, it's like you glue like the cap of the for the pen, and then you stick the pen. It's not like a hole, is it? I thought, you know, like I think of like going to the bank. Yeah, there's like a little metal ago. holder that your yeah. pen would sit in. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah they, that's, that's how they showed it. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, very low effort, and which I mean, they acknowledged. And the photos weren't that great either. I mean, no, they were like I black couldn't. and white and like limestone with shells in it. It just looked like a piece of host rock belonging. Yeah, it kind of kind of was, right? Like limestone with shells. Yeah, it didn't. Didn't. The, the picture is hard with the pictures. I don't know. I'm curious. Did, did they look better when they were freshly printed? Has the ink like spread over? almost 50 years or faded or darkened or something because yeah those weren't good pictures at all they just look like a black black rock with little white speckles in it yeah maybe this they didn't have a good photographer on staff and yeah they they were not they were definitely lacking a lot of the pictures just seemed really dark and i mean if you're gonna show like plume agate like I don't There's know. There's a color photo of the plume. There was? Yeah, there was. Okay, well, I don't remember it. <laughs> a lot of the stuff where it's just not a color photo, like that, the rock with the shells, like you need to figure out a way to photograph it to show, I don't know, maybe like a close-up or... Yeah. Yeah, I looked it up. I didn't really find pictures of it of because of that stuff that they're saying it was really dark colored i saw light colored i mean i but i know what uh, i dropped a pin on oh. highway one on google street view mm-hmm. and you can see some dark material huh. but obviously with google street view it's like not super high quality but you know uh, it seems like right off of that it seems like you know mm-hmm. you could you go pick it up one uh i had one article Towards the end, last one, Opal Talk, 
definitely mm-hmm. uh, struck a little bit of a nerve with me. Um, part of what we're doing with the podcast is seeing how, if anything, has changed, you know. And clearly, we're already starting to see that some things have changed from 1975 till today. Photography. Photography. <laughs> Everybody's got the world's greatest phone in their pocket or a well, camera, camera in their pocket. Theoretically. In the small article, Opal Talk, it opened by saying the care and protection of opals in jewelry is a subject too often left to superstitious rumors. Now, this is something that I really agree with. Since I uploaded a video digging opal at Jenny's house, I have gotten a slew of wacky, wacky, wrong, nutty comments about opal, more so than any other material. And I really learned that many people that are into opal know nothing about opal. Now, I'm not saying that I'm an opal expert, but... uh, it's interesting that even back then they're like, come on, people, like what? trying to like de- debunk some of the stuff about like preventing cracking and doing some of these things. And it seems like nothing's changed. Still today, you have people say one thing, never test it, never think about it, and then just repeat it. And then that game of telephone goes on indefinitely and here we are 40 something years later (laughs) still playing the opal telephone game of how how you should take care of this stuff so was the information in the article accurate uh the best of my knowledge Hmm. you know so they knew everybody has known better for almost 50 years since we're on the topic, some of the stuff that um, I have heard from people is that the opal, once you get it out of the ground, you need to leave it in mineral oil for two years <laughs> before drying it out, and that will prevent cracking. Um, just all this. Well, I mean, that these... sounds like maybe it was rooted in accuracy because the article was saying, you know, that you can't go from extreme temperature to extreme temperature that will. I think the problem the problem with opal is there are specific things that you should do for different types of opal. Like, you know, you have an Ethiopian opal, an Australian opal, boulder opal, all these different types of opal, like opal from America, wherever. And somebody's like, oh, I learned this thing about Ethiopian opal, and uh, I'm going to extrapolate that to all opal across the whole entire planet, and... Never think it through. And uh, back then, they were still a little like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. And here we are today being like, come on. Come on. Well, uh, yeah, I think they undersold this issue. I thought this issue was better yeah, than I... what the cover uh, cover was. You know, yeah. I, I, I thought their thing about Graveyard Point was really nice. Mm-hmm. And... It definitely seems like most of the articles are not what you see in rock hounding or even, I don't know, lapidary gem content now where you're like, look at this amazing thing I made or like, look at this amazing find or my bucket, it's overflowing with material or 
like it's nothing in it comes off as like bragging which a lot of things not like a magazine sort of content but generally i guess mostly like social media internet stuff comes off as bragging or boasting or secrets and i don't see that in this magazine it it's certainly more modest yeah it's more modest and I don't know, have some more general, like, down-to-earth vibe, I guess, like... Yeah, I'm curious if we read a contemporary one. Are they like, check out this giant piece of Ethiopian opal that I'm working with. Costs thousands of dollars. Clickbait didn't exist in 1975. Well... I don't know. I don't think that's true. It exists on a very different level today. sure. Well, I think this is going to conclude episode three of the previously rock hunting podcast. And in the next episode, we will be looking at Rock and Gem magazine from December 1975. We have Million Dollar Rockhound Trail, the basics of belt buckle design, gold crystals, the lost wax necklace, fire agates, and Rockhound poinsettias. I feel like they heard us say they're modest and then they're like gold crystals. <laughs> Million dollar rockhound trail. So maybe we're, maybe this is gonna, one that'll prove us wrong. We'll be like, never mind. What do you call clickbait when there's nothing to click? <laughs> I don't know. Sensationalism? Just bait. Uh, All right. We'll catch you next time on the next previously rock hunting podcast.